grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Church, I want to tell you a story that as I tell it, you're going to think the story is about perseverance and determination, but it's actually about something else completely. Over a month ago now, I completed my first ever full marathon. Thank you. I'll, okay. I'll cheer along with people doing dumb things to their body. Sure. Good. A few years ago now, I told Katie one day that I wanted to run a marathon before I turned 40, and since that day is coming up this January, we figured out 2022 was the year to do it. So this past year, I signed up for the Holland Haven Marathon on the west side of the state. In March of this year, I paid for a training app that planned out all of my workouts and weekly runs, and in May, my training kicked off. And from May to September, I logged 427 miles of running over something like 64 hours. For my long runs, I had to wake up at 4 a.m. and hit the road by 4.30 so I could be back before anyone else in the house woke up. I monitored my nutrition. I did all the stretches. My pacing was nearly perfect for my entire training plan. And even as my mileage got up to 17, 19, 20 miles in a single run, I felt good. I remained confident. I could hit my target goal for the marathon. And soon the race day arrived. And on the morning of September 11th, Katie drove me up to the starting line in Grand Haven, Michigan, and waited with me while we waited for the race to begin. Here I am, standing at the start line. I was ready, church. I was eager. More importantly, oops, let's see if I can get it pulled up here. Sorry about that. Oh, I'm just going to keep going here. More importantly, I was really, really, really proud of all of my solo training efforts. The race began, and I committed the first and perhaps the greatest sin of all marathon runners. I started going way faster than my training pace. I was supposed to start slow and get into a rhythm before settling in to my race pace, but that was before I started to dream about what it was going to be like to absolutely crush my goal. Over the first few miles, I began to pass slower runners, runners who looked in pain already. Outwardly, I smiled and cheered them on the way runners do to one another. Inside, though, I said to myself, probably didn't train enough. <laughs> At mile 10, I watched an otherwise fit runner slow to a walk and clutch his side. Are you okay? I yelled in support. Not enough hydration, I said in my mind as I took a long sip from my hydration vest. At mile 15, I watched a fellow runner stop, clearly in pain and try to stretch his legs before he collapsed to the ground. You can do it, I said to him as I ran by. Not enough salt, I thought to myself as I sucked down an energy gel and kept going. All was going so well, church, and then, then I got here. Mile 22, 
I took this picture so I'd remember this moment. And it was here, church. It was here at this moment, at this part of the course. I'm here to tell you that at mile 22, God's judgment against the proud was revealed to be a very real thing. <laughs> if you're wondering how I was able to take a picture of this sign while running, let me stop you right there. I was no longer running. I was half walking, half limping, because at mile 22, I felt like every muscle in my legs began to spasm at the same time. I, I tried to stop to stretch, but the pain was too great. I was afraid that if I wouldn't be able to keep moving if I stopped for long. I tried drinking water and eating something salty, but it was too late. My body was rebelling against me, and all of the privately haughty things I had thought about my fellow runners came back to haunt me. From mile 22 to 25.5, I walked, sort of. Humbled by my own physical situation, I knew my hopes of finishing at my goal were long gone. To a bystander, I was moving with this halting, half-walking, half-staggering jog that just looked pathetic. I was also an emotional wreck, bursting into tears around mile 24 when an otherwise nice spectator told me I was doing great. Lady, I thought, I'm not doing great. I'm barely holding on. But the lowest part of my humiliation came by seeing the same runners whom I had pitied earlier. Those whom I had judged in my heart as deficient now passing me by. And in a cruel twist, offering me encouragement and consolation. For the last half mile, though, I jogged. I was determined I was going to run across the finish line, which I did. I was so happy to see Katie and some of my extended family who had gathered to cheer me on, all standing there, smiling and cheering church. I was so glad to be done. I didn't hit my goal, not even close, but I did finish. And along the way, I saw a glimpse of just how judgmental I could be towards my fellow human beings, people I didn't even know Outwardly, I was encouraging and nice, but inwardly, Lord have mercy. Today, Jesus is going to teach us about what it means to stand along our neighbors without passing judgment against them. As Luke 18, 9 puts it, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who regarded others with contempt. Yikes. But what Jesus is going to say through this parable is for us going to be another lesson in how religion can fail. Now, if you heard today's gospel reading and you weren't cut to the heart like I was when I read it, well, you may want to buckle your spiritual seatbelts because it's going to get rough for everybody here today, myself included. To address this issue of people trusting in themselves and having contempt for others, Jesus deploys a short and sweet parable, a story beginning with an otherwise everyday phenomenon. Two people going up to the Jerusalem temple to pray. Let's stop there for just a moment. Two people going up to the temple to pray. Now, if we're going to understand this parable, you should know that this illustration of people going up to the temple to pray was a common occurrence for Jesus' first listeners. Those hearing Jesus say this would have had their own experience of watching people in the temple courts offering private prayer. They themselves may have gone up to the temple to pray. People going to the temple 
was a daily reality. Lots of people went during the week for all sorts of reasons. What did they go to do at the temple? Here's what one biblical scholar writes about people going to pray in the temple. He says, going to the temple to pray seems to have been perceived as a practice of personal piety and not communal obligation. Participation in the sacrificial services of the temple consisted of tithing, watching the sacrifices, hearing the Levitical choirs, paying the temple tax, and receiving the priestly blessing. Whatever prayers were said among the public at the temple appear to have been spontaneous and only informally connected to the temple services. So, if a person was going to the temple to pray, it was out of their own piety, their own religious conviction. They didn't go to a formal prayer service at 9 or noon. Church, nobody changed the worship time to 10.30 on them and threw off their whole mornings. The temple was open all day with lots of things happening at the same time. Sacrifices being offered, choirs singing, priests blessing, and so forth. Any personal prayer that would have been offered was done privately. That seems to fit with our reading in the parable. Two people went up to pray. They went to the temple to offer personal prayer by themselves, and their prayers were probably not out loud prayers, but prayers offered quietly in their hearts. And as they pray, they may even take on postures of reverence or thanksgiving or contrition, but no one else would know what exactly they were praying. Two people went up to the temple to pray. So far, so good. We get that. Jesus goes on to describe these two. One of them is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. As you may know, Pharisees were folks who were incredibly zealous for keeping the law of God. They were exceptionally pious and virtuous. They were exemplars of what it meant to keep and do God's laws. A parent of a child who expressed a desire to become a Pharisee would have been proud of the child's decision, would not have thought of that as a lesser-than experience. Pharisees didn't just keep laws that the Bible had. They kept extra laws. They added new layers to keeping the law that demonstrated their own radical commitment to religious purity and zeal. As a result, people looked up to them. People strived to be like them. Jesus is even going to be complimentary of their righteousness, telling his disciples, unless your righteousness is as good as the Pharisees, you're in trouble. People were, they were important religious leaders for the Jewish people. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were anything but virtuous. They were Jews employed by Rome to collect the appointed imperial taxes, but along the way, they would take more than what they were owed and they would line their pockets with the difference. They were despised among fellow Jews, mostly because they were ripping off their own people in service to the Roman Empire to make a profit for themselves. Nobody would have been happy if their child said, I'd like to be a tax collector when I grow up. So Jesus says two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. And in Jesus's parable, we get to eavesdrop on their private prayers before God. Now, as I've suggested, I don't think these prayers were spoken out loud. I think these prayers were the inner prayers offered by these two people, offered perhaps while the temple choirs were singing or while sacrifices 
were being offered. Up first, the Pharisee, verse 11, if you're following along. Here's his beginning. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. What a beginning. What a self-congratulatory prayer of sublime hubris. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. You know, like really bad people, like thieves, rogues, adulterers, or like this guy over there, that tax collector. Presumably, the Pharisee is there at the temple, and he's heard the words that the choir has been singing that day, words straight from the Psalms, Psalms about God's demand of outward righteousness from his people, Psalms like this Psalm that was sung on the first day of the week, a psalm that promises a blessing to those who do what is right. Psalm 15, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands, pure hearts, who don't lift their souls up to what is false, who do not swear deceitfully, they will receive a blessing from the Lord. Hearing the words of this psalm sung, the Pharisee might be fairly certain he's numbered among the righteous, mostly because he's not out there doing really, really bad stuff. The Pharisee goes on. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. In telling us this, Jesus is painting a picture of a man who's doing way more than what the Bible required. You can't find it anywhere in the law of Moses that people are supposed to fast twice a week or be giving a tenth of everything they receive. Only some things did you have to give a tenth of, not everything. Fasting and tithing were important, but not to this degree or frequency. This Pharisee is going way above and beyond, and he knows it. The Pharisee is convinced before God that his righteousness is tied to his righteous actions. He's convinced that his holiness exceeds that of others because of the things he's doing with food and money. And he clearly places himself in a different category than people who steal and plunder, and commit adultery, and break the law of God. The tax collector, on the other hand, standing in the temple, has also been paying attention to the psalms that the choir has been singing, psalms like this one that would have been sung on the fourth day of the week. Rise up, O judge of the earth, give to the proud what they deserve. The wicked pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and stranger. They murder the orphan. And they say the Lord does not see it. God will repay them for their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. But unlike the Pharisee, he has heard them as directed towards himself. He is cut to the heart convinced of his own complicity and sin, and now he is standing far off, beating his breast, his eyes downcast, and praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's heard about God's judgment against the wicked. He's heard about who is qualified to stand in God's presence, and he has searched himself and found himself wanting and inadequate, and he pleads with God to show mercy. And the parable ends with Jesus saying, it's the tax collector who goes home justified in the eyes of God and the Pharisee who goes home unjustified. Why? Because Jesus says everybody who exalts themselves will find themselves humbled. All those who judge their fellow marathon runners for not doing it right 
will be humbled come mile 22. All who truly, conversely, throw themselves on the mercy of God because they are convinced of their own failures, they will be lifted up. End of parable, but not the end of the lesson for us. In our lives, I think there are probably a million opportunities that each of us find to put forth our own self-righteousness and to simultaneously show contempt for our neighbors. It may not be running for you. It may be something else, like parenting. Good Lord, we parents are the great at judging the decisions of our fellow parents. We can find ourselves praying quietly under our breath, I thank you, God, I didn't let my kids do screen time at an early age like those other parents. I thank you, God, I didn't let sports schedules determine my church attendance like those other parents. I thank you, God, I made my kids do their homework and not play video games like those other parents. I thank you, God, I didn't let my kids eat junk food like those other parents, and so on. We parents can be the worst emblems of judgment against our neighbors. It may not be parenting for you, though. It may be socioeconomics. I thank you, God, I'm not like those people I see on the street. I thank you, God, I planned ahead for my retirement, unlike my neighbor who still has to work into his 70s. It may not be that. It may be religiosity. I thank you, God, I come to church every Sunday, not like my neighbor who mows his lawn instead. We can do it with our friends at school. I thank you, God, I'm friendly and kind and have lots of friends, not like that kid who's a jerk on the soccer field who nobody else likes. It may be a literally a million other areas of our life. We are constantly sizing ourselves up against other people, content to highlight before God the things we think we're doing right parading around our own moral goodness and bragging to ourselves, we've got it down while others are doing it all wrong. The parable Jesus tells us today is a five-alarm warning bell to watch out for this kind of attitude. This is the way of the Pharisee, it turns out, whose outward appearance is pious and holy, but whose inner prayer life is filled with judgment and condemnation toward those around him. It's a life filled with hubris and hypocrisy, a way of life that is enamored with its own goodness and is convinced that when the Bible says God is going to judge the wicked, that definitely doesn't include us. That way, Jesus says, leads to humiliation, it turns out. If Jesus is correct, and I dare say he is, the judgment of God is more likely to fall upon the self-righteous for their pride than it is upon the morally unrighteous for their sins. Let me say that one more time. The judgment of God is more likely to fall upon the self-righteous for their pride than it is upon the morally unrighteous for their sin. The way of the tax collector in this parable is the model example for us. It, it completely avoids the hypocrisy and hubris of the Pharisee and instead embraces honesty and humility in throwing himself upon the mercy of God. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The tax collector has heard the psalms sung by the choir and is convinced that he has messed up and failed to keep God's laws, and as such, he is deserving of judgment, and so he does all that he can do. He pleads for mercy from God. And Jesus says that this guy... This mercy-seeking sinner went home justified, and the other, the self-righteous Pharisee, went home under the judgment of God. What does all this mean for us here today? 
If you're like me, it means we've got a lot of work to do in terms of self-reflection. Where are we like the Pharisee? Who are we more, most likely to judge ourselves against? Who in our lives are the people we say, God, I thank you, I'm not like them? When and where do we need to find ourselves humbled by our own sins? How might we come face to face with our own failures this week so that we approach God not as somebody who's pretty good, you know, thank you very much, but as a sinner in constant need of God's mercy and grace? Religion fails when self-righteousness remains unchallenged and uncontested. When we fail to confront our own inner Pharisee and let him or her convince us that we're okay because, you know, at the very least, we're not, we're not out there robbing and murdering and committing adultery. We're half-decent people, so it's all good. Right, Jesus? Religion fails when it does not invite us to consider the many ways we have and continue to fail before God. Religion fails when it forgets that we are all beggars at the foot of God's door, not one of us here being deserving of anything save judgment. If you're here today, like me, and you're solidly checking the box in the Pharisee column, You've become wildly convinced of the fact that we're doing it right and others are doing it wrong. And maybe we need to hear Jesus' words afresh and try to learn what true humility looks like. Maybe the best outcome for us is to practice this week the prayer of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, until we actually believe it. Maybe we need to stop measuring ourselves against our neighbors and instead measure ourselves against God's laws where we find ourselves woefully wanting. And then, only then, I believe we will find ourselves ready to accept the good news of the gospel, which says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not waiting for us to get our act together first, Christ came in mercy. As long as we cling to our own goodness, we will stand in judgment of our neighbors, and subsequently we will be under the judgment of God. So come, church, this week, let's find the mile 22 of our marathon, and let's find our own humility, admitting our own faults. And May we cease our judgment of our neighbors and lean wholly upon the mercy of God offered to us freely through Jesus Christ our Lord. I speak to you in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let the church of Jesus Christ say.